Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the many, many, many projects we are working on. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Uh, doing really, really good, Joe. How you doing? Good. Did you uh, spend about a month since we talked? Did anything notable happen? Um, no. No? Okay. <laughs> well, good, good talk. I'll yeah. talk to you in a couple weeks. Sounds good. Um, no, we, uh, we shipped the beta for FM comparison. So the software is out in the wild and people are using it and almost universally liking it, which is great. Nice. Yeah, it was, it shipped, uh, kind of what the day before Claris Engage started. Yes. Formerly known as FileMaker DevCon. Yes. August 3rd. Okay. So. It's the last two weeks have been basically one long day so it's hard to <laughs> keep track honestly most of the last month mm -hmm. um our last episode was recorded on july 20th mm -hmm. and since then we did 203 commits on the native code and 155 on the ui alone well that's all fine and good but how many k-locks did we write <laughs> It that's was, how you measure code and productivity it was only a couple of k-locks in the long run but uh, yeah see we're just not good at this we would never make it in in the 70s <laughs> at ibm so the good news both for our listeners and for joe who has to edit this monstrosity is i'm not going to talk about all the things that have changed in the last month we have changed logs for that yeah and even that doesn't cover all of it but it's just there's just literally too much it was a huge heavy duty code push to get all sorts of things in line to be able to release the software and honestly for a week and a half to two weeks after that so mm -hmm. um the you know the big things that had to kind of be there in order to release were things like the auto update engine um shows all the updates including all the old ones so one of the things that I can't remember who it was, I think it was um, Gus Mueller of Flymeet Software had written a blog post a number of years ago about specifically coding to handle support requests. Mm -hmm. So whatever his most common support requests were, he would focus his code writing on making that stuff easier for users to handle themselves. And so one of the relatively common support requests we get is my license has expired, but that means there are still certain versions of FM perception that I'm allowed to use. And because mm -hmm. FM comparison uses the same system, people can have, there can be versions released after you're supported, but you can still install older versions. And so one of the things I wanted to do with FM comparisons update engine is give users visibility for that. So they could see not only the things that, um, you know, the features that had stacked up that they hadn't installed yet, if it's two or three versions, but also um, to be able to roll back to a previous version if they wanted to, literally from right in the app. Um, and that all works great now. Um, we've both been using it to update our development machines. Yeah, the, the trippy part was... 
I was running when I'm working on the UI, I'm running the Vue.js code <laughs> in a preview mode. Uh-huh. And so I was, I'm running a copy of the last, like, I guess maybe the last developer copy or the first beta copy that I downloaded manually. And it was whichever one had first had the update stuff built in. And I'm running a copy of the native app that's hosting the entire UI from a live preview server on my machine. I create the interface for the update stuff. So David already done like the basics, putting everything in there, but I went through and gave it a a nice layout and some formatting and stuff. So I created the interface and then I updated the app from the live preview server. So like a transient web server is downloading a native (laughs) app update and installing it. And then, you know, I have to relaunch it manually, but that that was the only thing I was like, that that is just weird. (laughs) And then the registration system, copy protection, my least favorite code. Mm-hmm. Um, I, God, I hate writing copy protection software. Um, I, I would avoid it if I could, but it is unfortunately a necessary evil. Um, it was the biggest problem of the whole thing was generating the same unique machine ID on windows between FM comparison and FM perception. Mm-hmm. So that, um, it would see it as the same machine. So if you had FM perception registered on that machine, FM comparison would also see itself as registered on that machine. And these unique machine IDs are easy on Mac because I just use the uh, serial number on the motherboard. One function call, get that done. On Windows, depending upon who your hardware vendor is, they don't always populate that property. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen machines where the serial number on the motherboard was just a bunch of zeros. And I don't want all of those users' machines to look as if they were one computer. So um, that was kind of fun. Took a little while. Um, Got started on layout diffing. Um, There's a whole interface we want to build for doing this better, but I wanted at least something in place and something to help users localize where changes had occurred. So when you click on a layout to look at what has changed, it will show you all the layout parts and the properties of the layout parts, the parts themselves. And then at the bottom of that, I just generate a rough count of the number of layout parts, or I'm sorry, the number of layout objects in that part and then take the full XML for all of those layout objects and hash it so that you can see, oh, this layout part got a new object added. This layout part has the same object count on both sides, but the XML changed somehow. So something changed in this layout part. Coming up, we'll have something better there, but I I at least wanted a rough cut on what was happening on layouts. Um, got all the script step parameter stuff done. Some of those were a serious pain. Things like the import script step <laughs> with all the different fields it can talk to and the weird options and the way different fields can match and link with other things and table creation settings and all of that. It's just this huge monstrosity. But it's all happy and it works. Uh, since release, I think I got two bug reports about that where there were two 
parameters that weren't displaying properly and those have been taken care of hmm. um and even with this mess it's still easier with this new way of doing script steps where they're parameter based rather than the old filemaker ddr way where basically every script step had a bespoke chunk of xml for expressing it so in fm perception i need 300 separate chunks of code to handle all the different kinds of script steps wow <laughs> it's actually not that bad because there's you know 50 of those steps don't have any parameters at all like um end loop is just end loop there's no options for it mm -hmm. but outside of that every single thing basically has its own special little snowflake version of xml for how that thing is handled in the new xml there are common parameter types and so when filemaker exports a script step it will compose all the little information that goes into that script step from one to five or six different parameters that are added so i can just look at the list of parameters and say what does this output look like? What does this output look like? Stack them all together and shove it out. So there's like 90 bespoke pieces of XML rather than 200. Um, I, I'll call that a win. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the bad news is I just really couldn't share any code there with FM Perception. Like if they had just done it the same as the stand as the DDR XML. I would have just copied and pasted that code and called it a day. <laughs> and that would have been nicer, but I think this is the, a better step for the long run. And then tons of little tweaks. Um, we had this weird bug where on the Mac, if you entered search criteria in the filter bar, Mac OS saw that as text entry into a document and dirtied the document window. So when you went to close the window, it would go, hey, do you want to save this document? We don't have document saving yet. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> that was a little fun to chase down. Um, some code to set the window name. So once the comparison starts, it'll take the names of the XML files and throw them into the title of the window. So that if you're running two different comparisons or you're running one, you're looking through it and somebody else needs you to look at something, you can look at another project and keep track of the two separate windows, mm -hmm. which is nice. Um, uh, Joe, you set up a fantastic kind of deeper hierarchy for the detail cards. So initially we had kind of, there's a great big header and then we had the ability to output one layer of kind of, oh, here's kind of a header for this section to break it up into smaller chunks. We essentially had title header and body mm -hmm. there are three types on that layout and now we have title header actually title category subcategory header title and the multiple body types and a message yeah the message, and a message. um so yeah and it it looks fantastic it's pretty easy to work with from a code side uh, I'm really happy with the way that look that turned out. If anybody wants to take a look at it, the best place to see it is probably in uh, a privilege set 
change, which uses yeah. all the different hierarchy levels. Um, uh, aligning the menus between the platforms. So the the window Chrome and the menuing systems had kind of grown ad hoc between the two platforms and menu items had kind of gotten stuck wherever was easiest or seemed vaguely most appropriate at the time. Mm-hmm. And then getting prepar- prepared for release went through and made sure that the they were kind of balanced between the two platforms. The Mac and Windows ones were either the same or more platform appropriate. Yeah. You know. Yeah, particularly having preferences where users would expect it to be based on where preferences are in FileMaker, pretty much. Right. Um, or the where you check for updates. Mm-hmm. Um, most of the time on the Mac, it's underneath the application name menu. And a, at least a lot of times in Windows, it ends up being kind of under a help menu or some kind. Yeah. Um, uh, lost track of where I was. Um, oh, yeah. So up until that point, we didn't have change numbers for organization changes. So the organization sections, like how are my scripts organized in their list? Um, there was a thing there and you could click on it and it would generate data and show you what the changes were, but it wouldn't kind of notify you that there were changes, which was problematic if, for example, the only change you made was to the organization. You didn't add, delete, or edit any of the scripts, but you moved them around in the list. Mm -hmm. The scripts would show as unmodified and the organization would erroneously show as unmodified. But this also had some weird edge cases to it because if you think about it, if you add a script to the scripts, you also added it to the organization. Mm -hmm. And if you deleted it, you deleted it. But if you edited a script, it doesn't necessarily have any impact on the organization. So I can't just borrow from the other numbers and say go. And then the other fun part is the things like script separators. You get the same thing with the layout list, the layout separators, in that the separators, if you create a separator that has no functional impact in your system and it's not a, um, you haven't created a script. So that doesn't appear in the edited scripts list, but it does appear in the count for an organization change. Just fun chasing down all the weird little things that people can do to their systems and making sure that you're covering all of them. And then that got even more fun with custom menu item separators. Because layouts and scripts can have separators, but those separators are basically dumb, logicless little elements. Hmm. You make them, you put them in the list, and you give them a position, and that's the extent, basically, of their definition. Um custom menu item separators can actually have logic tied to them for when they appear and disappear. And so in the case of the custom menu item separators, those actually have a presence in the list of custom menu items now and in the organization. Yeah. I think overall the organization layouts are some of the neatest things in the app right now. Because you essentially click on like layout organization or custom menu organization and it loads two kind of identical looking but two different lists of the data from 
two copies of the XML and they scroll independently and you can click on a row in the left side and it highlights and scrolls to that row in the right side or the corresponding row and vice versa. And uh, it's all just pretty slick. The uh, I don't know if we'd figured this out before the last episode or not, but one of the tricky parts was coming up with like a row was deleted on the other side. How do we show something like that? And I spent days trying to think of something and it finally just occurred to me like just a line in between the two extant rows where the item was deleted from. Uh-huh. And it ended up working out pretty well. Yeah, it was fun putting together the data for that, but then handing it off to you and you just crushing it. Mm-hmm. It looks it looks fantastic. It flows really well. And I think it does... <clears throat> about as good a job as it's possible to do for showing two big long lists of hierarchically organized stuff and showing you how that organization changed. Yeah. The the one thing I don't like about that layout right now is on Mac, the, the scrolling just snaps into position. So there is no animation or anything. And on mm-hmm. Windows... It's a nice, smooth animation, mm-hmm. but it's an animation that isn't capped by time. So if you are if you scroll all the way to the bottom of a very long list on the left column and then click on a row, it goes do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. <laughs> it just takes its time just scrolling down there. It's like, oh, wow. <laughs> this is, it sure looks nice, but that's not ideal. <laughs> Okay, well, we'll maybe play with that one. I hadn't, I hadn't recognized that one. Yeah, it's only noticeable on like really long lists of scripts. Like, I don't think people have very like super long lists of layouts. Like most systems, like two hundred layouts would be pushing it, but it's not uncommon to get a thousand scripts in a, in a file. Oh yeah. So then the beta went live about uh, on August third evening, um, the day before the conference. We'll be doing updates about once a week. Um, when I first released FM Perception, I did updates more often. Mm-hmm. And part of that was, A, I didn't have any of the notarization or anything like that that certainly made that process easier. I could press a button and five seconds later, I had a copy of the app that I could just stick on the update server and I was done. And then the other thing is that when FM Perception first released, there wasn't a Windows version. There was Mm. just one platform supported. We released the Windows version six months later. And so keeping those in sync, testing back and forth, and trying to keep the two applications as close to in lockstep as possible just slows that down. Mm -hmm. Um, and so it's just easier to take that overhead of making sure that everything's in sync and then doing a real update just a little bit less often. But I think we get better updates out of it. And I think we're asking the users to update less often is good. So that's cool. The response has been great. Um, it makes me a little twitchy that people are using it for like generating answers for their customers. <laughs> Um, like this is, yeah. this is beta guys. Uh, yeah, this may all be completely broken. I, I'm not going to go that far, but I, you know, that's, that's not even your database. 
Well, there, okay, there's that. Oddly, the way Engage went, there were sessions that were just not in my particular interest. So I was spending them kind of in the chat rooms and talking to people and stuff like that. But mm -hmm. um, that didn't consume all of my time. So I know I said I wasn't going to set up the new ARM Mac Mini until after Engage. But I had some downtime, so I set it up. <laughs> nice. Um, well, and... it was after it started. That's good enough. Yes, yes. Um, and I was figuring that at some point during the conference, somebody was going to ask. So I might as well go ahead and take care of that earlier rather than later. Mm -hmm. um, so it's up and running. I still need to like move it around and kind of plug it into a different monitor so that I can really just have it up and available all the time so that I can dump a build to it at any point and check to make sure that it's still working. Yeah. But um, FM comparison and FM perception both run under Rosetta 2. Nice. So at least at a minimum level, not, not recompiled natively, but at a basic level, they both run fine. Interestingly, FM perception has the most difficulty. Um, with all the weird tools that we use to make FM comparison, I was expecting that that would be a problem. It is not. It runs quite happily. Yeah. FM perception or FM comparison is basically a house of cards running in a house of cards. <laughs> uh, you know, but, as, uh, it works as somebody who sells software. I don't really like that phrasing, um, <laughs> but it, it's definitely using non-native tools. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, I guess that's like my, my file maker bias. So like, it's still, there's a part of me that whenever I do something in a web viewer, it still feels like cheating mm. a little bit. And that's kind of what FM comparison feels like. This is, we cheated to get this user interface here. Oh, no, no, no. It, it definitely cheats, but I, I'm not going to go with the, the house of cards thing. Okay. So, uh, FM perceptions difficulty actually has nothing to do with apple silicon it has mm -hmm. nothing to do with the r mac it has to do with uh, mac os 11 nice they made some more tweaks to the security model to mac os 11 that so if you think about how fm perception works you point it at the summary file for the ddr and that file contains links to the XML for the specific databases that got exported. Mm, right. So using the standard open dialog gives you access to the file you selected. And in earlier versions of macOS, that was enough to also get access to the files in that folder. So I could read from the associated files where all the real data is stored without asking separately for access. However, in macOS 11, asking for access to that one particular file gives me no access whatsoever to the other files in that folder. So I have to spend some time with that to figure out, A, if I can just ask for access to the folder, or if I have to ask for access to each individual file, which I'm really hoping I don't have to do, yeah. Um, or drop down into a different layer of the operating system to 
circumvent this weird thing. I don't want to do that. I have no interest in doing it. But if there's no other way to make the thing work, like, it, you know, some of my users have 80 to 100 files in their system. I cannot ask for access to each one. Can't. No, you need to ask for access to the the host folder. So whether you're in documents or on the desktop or downloads, yeah, that's the easiest thing is just, you know, give me access to the desktop or to a specific folder on the desktop. Right. Like I see this in Catalina all the time and it's, I understand what Apple's doing there. It's annoying yeah. as a user. It's annoying to constantly be berated by these dialogues. And then I almost always want an application to just have full access for the type of stuff I'm doing. And you can do that in settings. That doesn't need to be in settings. That needs to be in a menu in any document-based app. <laughs> like you should just be able to pick yeah. that right from a, the file menu. Yeah. Having to go into settings and security and it, it's just a mess. Yeah. It's going to get worse with Big Sur, it sounds like. So I'm pretty sure that I can find the right functions that would give me access to the folder. But if I ask for access to the folder, that's not going to tell me which of the files is the summary file. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing to stop a user from renaming that file. So I couldn't look for the file by name. The default for it localizes into 11 different languages. Yeah, um, I mean, this it's going to be a multi-step process. You're going to have to ask for permission to the folder and then pick the file from the location. So it's not going to be the same yeah. one-click thing. The other option would be to just make a drag and drop thing. Do you already have that? Um, no. The only kind of drag and drop you've got there is for the um, into the open dialogue. So okay. you can drag a file into that. Or you could maybe, that might be a thing, is allow multi-file open and you could drag on the whole folder's worth of files. Mm -hmm. Like drag 10 files in and then it could load all of them and in the process notice that one of them is the summary file. Effectively, at that point, we could throw out the summary file. Like we just don't care about it. Because we only use the summary file to find all the other files. Um, but that's a that's a whole weird little interface shift. And I'd hate to do that just to support the new operating system. But regardless, the key takeaway here is no substantive problem with Apple Silicon. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just going to have to do some playing with macOS 11. And because of that, I want to wait for a slightly later beta of macOS 11 just to see if some of these things get resolved or adjusted because it's not necessarily going to take me a ton of time to resolve. With FM comparison, did you actually load some XML files mm -hmm. and yeah. use the app? Cool. Totally works. It's Yeah, it's not really worth asking how it ran because this is temporary weird hardware <clears throat> that will never ship. Yeah, so. yeah. It, it ran perfectly fine. I didn't sit down with a stopwatch and even if I had... I am enjoined from discussing it. Um, yeah. But my thing was, as long as it runs and runs with approximately equivalent performance, it's not a substantive concern for me right now. Um, so yeah. So at that point, it's out. And then um, got the privilege sets done. Different privilege sets. Huge, huge pain in the tail. 
so the the code that outputs when you click on an item it shows you the detail information on the right hand side the code that does that 20 percent of that code is just privilege sets layout objects might get competitive when we get there but mm-hmm. sh- I, there's a really good chance that it's not just because the number of things you can do with privilege sets is horrible yeah, layout objects will outnumber privilege sets in terms of objects, but not in terms of complexity. Yeah. Um, code that would properly handle. So we said it requires the save as XML, XML from FileMaker 19. But there was nothing to stop you from selecting one from FileMaker 18. But it would basically hang. The parse process would get so far and then just die. Um, and so getting some proper error handling for FileMaker 18 XML, uh, DDRs, and XML that is not well-formed. Yes, FileMaker 19 can exam- can export XML that is not well-formed. Mm-hmm. Yay. Um, one of the more interesting ones recently was um, handling script step breakpoints. So the old DDR didn't export anything having to do with breakpoints that I can tell. But the new XML does. So if I've got two copies of a script and none of the steps have changed, but I added or removed a breakpoint on one side or the other, that was causing the XML to flag as changed for that particular step. Mm -hmm. And so first was isolating it and then going, okay, now what do I do with it? Like, do we want to flag these in the layout? Are we going to show breakpoint changes in the list of things? Like, how does this need to go? And I went out to the community and asked for input. And oh my gosh. So <laughs> our user base is now, still in beta, schismed. <laughs> nice. And it's basically boiled down predominantly into two camps, though at least partially into three. The first camp cares about every little change. Somebody was in there messing with that script. I want to know what changed. No matter how tiny, no matter how functionally irrelevant, I want to know about every single detail. The second camp says, I only care about functional changes. Something broke in this system and I need to identify how the functionality changed from one version to another. And these people so don't care about non-functional changes, they don't even care if comments in a script were changed because they're not functionally relevant. And actually, personally, I'm kind of in the middle camp. And the middle camp goes, well, you know, I need enough detail, but a comment change is relevant. Like... That's a, that's a real change that a human being made to that thing. But, I, you know, I don't really care about breakpoints. And so this gets into kind of figuring out the levels and limits and drawing little Venn diagram circles for all the things that we need to handle in configuration settings mm-hmm. so that we can allow people to say, these are the things I care about. These are the things I don't. Now run the comparison and tell me what has changed from my perspective. But yeah, that was a much larger discussion than I anticipated. I expected a fairly universal, yeah, I don't really care about breakpoints, just throw them away. Um, and yeah, I didn't get that. And the big thing we're kind of working on right now is dark mode. Mm-hmm. Um, looks great on the web. 
except for maybe the scroll bars. Yeah, I need to figure out how to change the color of the scroll bars in dark mode. I think I can do that in the browser without actually having to change anything about the window. Okay. But yeah, need need to find that out. It looks particularly bad on Windows because they're just always showing. Oh. On Mac, you've got that setting to... Like, the macOS default is to always hide scroll bars unless you're scrolling, but there's also settings to always show them or always hide them regardless of scrolling. So we don't really know what what that setting is for people. So yeah. we have to kind of account for them being there. And particularly, they take up more space in between the views. So in between the sidebar and the item list and the item list and the detail view, they actually modify the size of the layouts. So yeah, it's figure outable. I just need, <laughs> like on macOS, they they don't. Like they the scroll bar lays over top of the sidebar. Well, when you have it in that mode where it, it only shows on scrolling, that it just shows that line when you're scrolling. But when you have it always show, it has a, a track in between the two layouts. And that's, you know, it's eating into the layout at that point. <laughs> um, I've got support added in macOS. So when you toggle the state in the system settings, the window automatically notices and everything updates. Mm -hmm. and it looks really good. Windows, not so much. <laughs> I, I notice the shift. I inform the UI. The view UI responds. So the web goes into dark mode. Okay. But the window Chrome and the menus don't. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've seen other apps fail with that as well. Yeah. Or, so I'm not sure. Or rather, they notice, they just don't do anything about it. Like, yeah. like they're getting the notification, but WPF, the Windows Presentation Foundation, the UI tools that I'm using to draw the window Chrome for the Windows Windows, um, does it was too old for having a real understanding of dark mode, mm -hmm. and they didn't backfill it. So you're kind of dropping down into what was designed for theming Windows UIs. And yeah, I'm kind of beating my head against that one. So it bumps into kind of a weird problem. What do we do with it? Like, do I release it where dark mode is only 80% on Windows? Or do I release it where dark dark mode is supported in Mac, but not on Windows. I could just switch it off for Windows and Windows always stays light even when the OS is set to dark mode. Now, I mean, does the next window you open open in dark mode? No. Okay. No. It, it's the window doesn't know how to display in dark mode yet. I'm going to have to yeah. teach it and that's proving complicated. I would release it anyway. I, it's such a minimal amount of the window. Yeah. I don't, yes, it's annoying, but it's better than nothing. Yeah. Well, and, and that's kind of one of the options is wait until we've got preferences so mm -hmm. that a user could say, um, I know my operating system is in dark mode, but I would like FM perception to stay in light mode. But yeah. that's getting into the 
preferences and settings stuff, which still needs work. So yeah. my guess is it's probably release it where it's only 80% on Windows. But so anyway, that's my current fun. I'm basically FM perception or FM comparison 24 seven at this point, support requests have a tendency to do that to my brain. Um, mm-hmm. So, but you've been working on some stuff that isn't just FM comparison, right? Yeah. Yeah. So lots of work on FM comparison. So that last week after the last podcast was kind of a code sprint to get the beta out. And then I had to shift focus for some client work to do a big PHP update and a database update for a child care provider who works with a bunch of schools and they're kind of at the mercy of the school about whether or not they're going to be reopening. So we had to basically do like 15 dimensional chess and create all <laughs> these different versions of this registration system. And I mean, I usually work because of my RSI limits. I usually work 30 hour weeks and I have been for the last three or four years. I put in like 67 hours. That oh. week. Oh. That was pretty brutal. <laughs> um, yeah, that was a lot of work. I, I mean, I wrote a lot of PHP, and not that much FileMaker. Like, I made some schema changes, but not that much, not that many logical changes. So everything in the schema was additive. So I added on. I used the concept of like one-to-one relationships to just literally bolt on features to existing tables. Um, so that when we're done with this, if we need to, we can just rip everything out and not have it affect any of our regular systems. So I got everything up and running. Um, hundreds of people have already used it. Like it was one of those things, like we usually do things fairly slowly with this customer, like months of planning, you know, working on a dev server, rolling out changes to the staging server, checking everything, testing everything deploying it to production like on a Sunday morning when no one's around. We didn't get to do any of that. It was like on Monday, we're meeting to talk about what we're building. And on Friday, it's going live. And that's what happened. <laughs> and it was ridiculous. And there, you know, there were some bugs, but there was no data loss. There was no data corruption. Like nothing went wrong with the data. And that's a, a victory as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. There was some like you know, tweaks to the copy we made throughout the week to try to make it more clear because people had a lot of questions. But yeah, it went pretty well. And then I'm, I'm still working with them. I probably will be working with them through the fall. Um, I get to rebuild several of their reports to handle these new registration options, depending on where, where we are with how schools in session. And then I've got to redo their billing system to make use of these new products, which that I have plenty of time on. We don't have to run billing until October 1st, but the reports have to be done this week. So yeah, it's been a crazy amount of stuff. And then the last two Sundays have been super productive. I've drawn a hard line in the sand and said, these are my days. Everybody else, leave me alone. And, uh, <laughs> last Sunday, so not yesterday, but the week before last, I worked on retrospective timelines and I had basically been slacking off all summer just waiting you know like I kind of dived into Xcode several times like I've downloaded every Xcode beta and 
most of them I've only downloaded and launched and then closed. <laughs> and then the most recent one, I downloaded it and installed it and updated my phone to the beta and the iPad to the beta and started playing with it. And I had this huge backlog of issues in my GitHub project for this and this huge notes file that I had been keeping track of ideas with. And I, I spent about three hours just doing kind of a, a triage session of going through and getting rid of stuff. And then I wrote out a short punch list of what I want the app to do for iOS 14. So not everything I want to do with it long-term, but just to have it ready when iOS 14 ships. And I went through and I made that list and I thought that was going to be several weeks worth of work. That was about two hours worth of work. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it took longer to plan the work than it did to do the work. And a lot of this was like all that stuff that I was complaining about for the last six months about Swift UI, most of it got fixed. And importantly, it wasn't fixed in the early betas. I looked at a lot of the stuff in June and then I didn't touch Swift UI for four betas and now it's all fixed. So I'm like, nice. this is a good strategy. Don't do anything until August. That's partially my strategy for Mac OS 11. Yeah. Wait a little while and see what happens. Yeah, so the the phone version of the retrospective timelines in iOS 13, it's fine. It's it's a it's a fine iPhone app. It's not great, but it's adequate. The iPad app in iOS 13 is bad. It isn't it just doesn't feel like an iPad app. It's just got too many restrictions on it because of so many issues I was having. And now I've got a nice iPad version with a sidebar for the timelines and the item or the timeline list showing in the main content area and doing transitions to the detail views. And it's interesting because the sidebar on the iPad and the list view on the iPhone, they look very different formatting wise, but they're the exact same code running just in two different environments. And that's part of what I think is super interesting about Swift UI of being able to say, here is a list of timeline objects that have a you know a name and an icon and a color circle render them how you will and they render them in two different ways and i think that's pretty interesting um so yeah i've got almost i, I can ship ios 14 now the one thing i want to add before that is the widget so i had a widget in ios 13 it's called the on this day widget that basically just does the same thing as the on this day smart list um, in the app. And you could throw that in the widget area and it would update every day and just find things that happened on that same day in previous years or future years if you're using future dates. And I pulled that out because it was it never really worked that well. It had to run in, a, in an app group. So I had to like change a bunch of permissions for a bunch of core data stuff. Yeah, it was kind of a mess. So I looked at the new widget kit for iOS 14. And I haven't started work on it yet, but I got into it and realized part of widget kit is a class called timeline, which was like, <laughs> uh-oh, because my class is called timeline. <laughs> That's not gonna work. Um, so I, I had kind of a, a dreadful half an hour where I thought, I'm going to have to rename my core data entities, which means I'm going to have to 
You can't rename stuff in CloudKit, which means I'm going to have to do an entire CloudKit container migration. So mm. effectively duplicate the database and start over. And there's no limit to how many times I can do that because technically this is the user's CloudKit container. So I, I want to have some way to clean that up, but it's, it's not like using up resources from my perspective, but it just seemed like a really big step. And then I realized the core data classes that I'm interacting with are just wrappers around core data. And I found a way to rename those without actually renaming the underlying tables. And voila, I now have RT timeline and RT events and RT date. And uh, that's good enough to be able to start working with widget kit. So I'm going to start with an on this day widget and then maybe I don't know if I'll have time to do it before iOS 14 ships, but I also want to do some other widgets for like picking a a specific item and just pin that to a widget. So like, give me, just always show me the duration since this particular start date or end date from this event. And I think I might do that by leveraging the favorites system now, just loading up the favorites view as a picker and say, which one of these dates do you want to show in this widget? And that would be really good for small widgets. So in iOS 14, you've got three different sizes of widgets, at least on the phone. You've got small, which is like four app icons, medium, which is eight app icons, and large, which is 16 app icons. And uh, I think that small icon or the small widget would be really good for just tracking several dates of stuff. So I've got one for like when my company's gonna run out of money, which is currently six months out or so. I like to keep that in the six months range. Um, but I also want to know like, you know, my sobriety date and when I started my company and stuff like that, that mm -hmm. stuff would be good to just always having those small favorite widgets. And then the on this day widget, well, that's probably the one that'll ship first, but yeah, I've got some work to do on the visual timelines, but that's more, you know, someday maybe list stuff based yeah. on the rest of my workload. But uh, SwiftUI 2 makes that type of feature way more doable this time because it's got support for lazy loading VStacks. So I know we talked about this last winter, but VStacks are, when you throw things into a VStack, they basically went into a scroll view. It loads everything all at once. So it renders every view for every data object. And for my timelines, that's not bad. But if you've got hundreds or thousands of items in a timeline, you're going to run out of RAM before that timeline loads and the uh, system's going to force quit the app. So I, the, my kind of uh, private version of the visual timelines that I have in my version of the app uses a list item to render it in the same way that like a table view does, where it's kind of smartly deallocating cells as you scroll. And you can now do that with VStacks and HStacks, not with ZStacks, because that doesn't make sense, but <laughs> um, with VStacks and HStacks you can. So that makes that type of work. Like the, the limitation to list is that list is a formatted object and it's got opinionated ways of how to render stuff, but VStack doesn't. It's, it's an entirely uh, interface free thing. It's just a concept for stacking things up. So yeah, that's retrospective timelines. I've got a lot of work to do on it, but uh, it's looking pretty good. 
So a uh, note to yourself for your next big app okay. is um, namespace your classes. Yeah, right. <laughs> Definitely. I've done it pretty well with FM comparison in particular because um, I've got two entirely different platforms namespaces that I could collide with. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that like everything starts with an FMC underscore yeah, also makes it really easy for me to just type that in as part of a type ahead and I get 90% of the way to just the stuff that I care about. Yeah. But it, it seems like a pain when you're doing your first couple of hours of development, but it pays off in the long run. Yeah, I definitely need to do that. So then the other thing that I worked on yesterday and a little bit this morning was my WebEx R side project stuff. So we've talked about this quite a lot the last couple months. Um, where we left it last was I want to work with A-Frame and with Vue.js at the same time for no good reason other than I want to and darn it, I'm going to figure out how to. So nice. I was stuck with... I couldn't get my 3D models to load using basically a, you know, kind of a default template built with Vue CLI. And it had to do with Webpack not understanding the file types and just refusing to load them. Um, So anytime I ran the preview or built the app, it just left the files out. Like it kept the links or the references to them in the code, but it just never copied in those files. And I had it on my list to send you a copy of a project to see if you could debug it and figure out what was going on or how to make changes to Webpack. Webpack is basically like a bajillion config files from what I can tell. <laughs> like you just have to like shake a keyboard add configuration file until Webpack works the way you want it to. It's just, it's inscrutable. <laughs> a little bit of voodoo. Yeah. So on my on that same item where it says send Dave a, a copy, there was also an or try Nuxt. So Nuxt is the abstraction layer um, around Vue.js, which basically like streamlines a bunch of stuff for Vue.js and makes it easier to run on a server and do server-side rendering. And I was interested in that because a lot of the stuff I want to do is going to involve connecting to databases. And I don't necessarily want to spin up an entire PHP server and deal with PHP just to make an API request into FileMaker server or something like that. Like it just seemed like a bunch of extra work. So if I can do those those in JavaScript and just have that JavaScript running on the server and then rendering pages with that data, that sounds awesome. So before I sent that project to you, I decided to give myself a couple of hours yesterday morning to learn how to make a Nuxt project and you know, step through the project setup stuff, the manual way and then like the automated way in the terminal and uh, you know, just played around with it. Um, one of the options in the terminal setup is like, do you want to include Tailwind? I'm like, yes, I do. And uh, got that up and running, got A-Frame plugged into it. And it's actually a lot cleaner way to do that because you it, they've got a bunch of configuration properties exposed that can directly tie into the view configuration stuff, but as properties on the Nuxt configuration, which is ends up being really clever. Um, so it's okay. a, a lot easier to add scripts into the site header 
than it is in view where you basically just have to go find that index file and add it there. Um, so I'm still importing a frame from the CDN. I didn't build it from Node, but I was still having the same Webpack issue with Nuxt. And I'm on the page reading about the asset system in Nuxt. And there are two folders mentioned. There's assets and there's static. And static is basically what it sounds like. This folder mm -hmm. just gets copied over to the server regardless of what's happening in Webpack and the assets folder. I'm like, that is good enough for me. So I started mm -hmm. putting my assets there and you don't even have to reference them with a path. You basically just give them like a default path for the, uh, the server and it just throws it an entire static folder at the base directory. So I can throw all my 3D models and audio files and materials, all that stuff in there and just have them loaded yeah. um, or have them served anyway. And that is good enough. I, maybe someday I'll figure out the web pack stuff, but I'm not super motivated yeah. to. The plain Vue.js has a static folder as well. Okay. I figured it did. Yeah. But the, uh, so I got the, I got, so I got the assets loaded in the static folder. And then my next question was like, how am I going to host this? And I've got an A2 hosting account that I have my WordPress server on. It's just a, a cPanel server. So it's a Linux server running cPanel on top of it. But I can also SSH into it and do whatever I need to on the command line. But that's a pain in the butt and I don't really want to do that. And I'm lazy. Um, so I got as far as SSHing into it and it's like, that's not your password. I'm like, it is the password. It's the same password I just used to log <laughs> in right here. I got about that far and just started looking around for other alternatives. And I found a blog post that had a little tutorial about using this service called Versal, V-E-R-C-E-L. And it's basically node hosting. I'm sure they host other environments as well, but it seems to specialize with Node and, and Nuxt and Vue and stuff like that. And I've never, I've, I've been aware of this type of stuff existing, but I've never actually done it. But essentially it was sign up with an account with GitHub. So you log in with GitHub, you give it access, you know, you're using it as like an OAuth client with GitHub. And then you create a project, point it at a repo, point it at a branch, and then set up a little bit of configuration stuff, add a configuration file to the project and commit that into the repo. And then anytime you make a commit to that branch, the web server rebuilds using all of your Nuxt settings and Node stuff and view stuff. It rebuilds a copy of that project and serves it. And oh, sweet. Yeah, it's incredible. So like I make, I can work on a branch, make a bunch of changes, then merge those all into the main branch and they're hosted. Like within two minutes, the entire thing has refreshed and I get an email like, hey, these four URLs have been updated. And it's free for personal projects. And then they sell um, premium versions for anything to do business related. Mm -hmm. So for now, I'm just using the, the personal stuff for these kind of sandbox projects. But if I want to turn any of these into products or use any of these for consulting work, then I'll have to get the team account. Yeah, check a couple of boxes, give them a credit card, and you're done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's super, super slick. And I didn't have to figure out any of the hosting stuff. Like, I, I didn't have to, you know, SSH into anything and set up a, 
a dev environment and I didn't have to FTP a bunch of files anywhere. It's literally just plug in the repo and pick a branch. And like, that is awesome. Yeah. I, I'm someone, I like making stuff. I don't like administering stuff. Like I don't want to be in the business of taking care of a bunch of web servers, which is one of the reasons I've not done as much web work as maybe I should be doing. Cause I'm fairly good at it and people like giving me money for it, but <laughs> um, this may be a good way to go in the future. I need to talk with their support and find out how, how it works like managing other people's accounts from a team account. Like, can I set up a team account for one of my customers and manage it for them? Uh-huh. Stuff like that. But yeah, it is really, really slick. So now I've got, I'll, I'll throw a link in the show notes. It's not, I don't have a domain pointed at it yet, and I probably won't for any of these personal projects. But obviously I can throw a domain in front of this. But I've got a basically a sandbox project that is a simple Noxt app with a landing page and some buttons that just load a couple of other pages for now. And I'll add some complexity as I go. But for now, I've got like a welcome screen, which is a little snarky. And the uh, gray meditation scene that I made a couple months ago. And then another scene where I was playing with some environmental variables and colors and shapes and animations. And I'm going to keep playing with that throughout the week. And then a a page I made this morning because I wanted to pick out better colors for the Tailwind theme to match some of the colors I'm using and materials in some of the scenes I'm making. So now I've, I've got basically what I wanted in the first place, which is a project in VS Code where I can go and just experiment and tinker with stuff and then immediately try it in VR. Um, I can use the, the same type of live preview technology to run it on the machine. Nox doesn't run outside of the machine natively. There are ways to get it to work, but it doesn't do that natively. So I think the the process will be either working on the Mac, making a bunch of changes, checking in the browser, or working on the PC and just checking the changes in the uh, Windows Mixed Reality headset as I go. So I'll kind of go back and forth finding what what's more comfortable there. But yeah, it's that is everything I wanted from this type of setup. It took me a while to get there, but now I feel like I've got a foundation in place where I can really start playing with ideas. And some of the stuff I want to do now is like plugging the site into, say, my FileMaker server to request data from the data API. And maybe a good place to start is like my VR database of all the different apps and games I've got. Because, of, of course, I'm the type of nerd who has a database for that. Mm-hmm. I mean, building a VR interface for that could be fun. I even thought about, I can probably build a way to query the database when I log in and that creates, it does all the requests to the FileMaker server, but saves it as static assets that just load from a JSON file when anybody else visits the site. So they just view the most recent version of what I had mm-hmm. cached on the server without everybody hammering my FileMaker server all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that matches a lot of my experience with JavaScript is getting started is the most painful part of the process. Mm -hmm. Like getting all the pieces that you want to have work together, working together the right way takes 60% of the project duration. Yeah. 
And once you get there, your productivity goes through the roof. Yeah. It's just, you're making stuff, you're building stuff. It's straightforward. All the pieces are working. It's all happy. But getting there is just painful. Yeah. So I'm, I'm going to do all kinds of experiments with like using the component system in Vue and Nuxt to dynamically create stuff in A-frame scenes. Sounds like a lot of fun stuff that not very many people are doing. I'll probably also make a, a separate site to do, to maybe more document the process of connecting to a FileMaker server. Um, there's a, a framework called Axios, which sounds like an evil tech company, but it's actually just mm -hmm. a, a, a framework for doing for dealing with data databases and APIs is basically middleware that runs you can run it in the browser but it can also run in the node environment on the server so I can do all of those API requests from the server without publishing a bunch of API keys onto you know the scripts tag of a HTML page which would be very very bad yeah um, so yeah I'm gonna start small so I'll start with axios but with a public, API like a joke of the day site or a weather site or something and when I learn the basics of that then I'll switch over to my database server so I'm only dealing with one broken thing at a time but yeah tons of tons of stuff coming there I eventually want to plug it into the JSON API for uh, CloudKit and actually pull down my retrospective timelines data into VR and build some <laughs> stuff there which I don't know how many people who bought the app would be interested in that, but it, I mean, I'll use it. I think it'd be fun. <laughs> but you're interested in making it. Yeah. So yeah, that's what I've been working on. I've got a lot of work to do on FM comparison and uh, some client work, but I feel like I'm in a good place with both of my side projects where I'm not, I guess that's, the last couple months, I felt like I was kind of in a bad place with both of these because I wasn't making any progress. But in order to make progress, I needed to spend a bunch of time. And now mm -hmm. I feel like the last couple of Sundays, I, I put in that time and gotten over mm -hmm. the hurdles that, I, that were kind of holding me back from that more free time tinkering after work or in the evenings where I, I've had plenty of time after work where I could be tinkering with this stuff. And I just haven't done it because I, I don't want to face these big, technical challenges mm -hmm. for that time. I just want to make layouts and throw stuff in 3D and make scenes and work with that 3D models and stuff. Like that is a different type of tinkering than, especially when I've you know, done 10 hours of PHP in a day, I don't want to deal with a bunch of complex logic. Like I just want to doodle. And uh, I think I've given myself a place to do that now. Very cool. So yeah, next up, uh, FM comparison in VR. <laughs> Kidding. That's not coming anytime soon. No. Definitely not on Mac because WebKit does not support much of WebXR right now. That uh, That is, if nothing else, it is not on the spec for version 1.0 release. No, definitely not. Although it is a fun data set to play with. Like, because there's so there's such a complexity of the hierarchy that could mm -hmm. actually be maybe I'll, I'll grab a copy of the windows app and just make some a-frame scenes in the a branch because <laughs> <laughs> how else am i going to get like thousands and thousands of things to render without connecting to a database 
like, like whenever you add layout objects, I can just start making 3D versions of the layout objects. Yeah, horrifying. You're killing me, Joe. Yep. None of this will ever ship. It's just, just a way to play with A-Frame. 